that the, the temporary lighting that you see as you enter, I mean, it's not just a thing in a case, it's an experience. You, you go into the space and the lights dim and it tells you the story of the skull as best as you know, researchers could put it together by looking at the, the successive kills over time. And uh, a, a story is told by a native elder, and then you know, the lights come up in the case and you are invited to, to view it. The, the skull is viewed through a, a hole in the model of a skull. And it, it, it kind of amazes me when this was found, this was not disrupted, because if you would, were to see this, it would be very easy to, to ignore. And it was just something else in a pile of, of hundreds of bison skulls. And so in the artifact itself is not... I don't want to ruin it for folks here. The artifact itself, in some ways, is not that compelling unless you know what it is. It's a crushed section of skull with some pigment on it. But what it is and how it got there and, and the story behind it that was you know, gleaned through research is, is really what makes it astounding. The object itself isn't so astounding, but it's the story that it embodies. Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. What you just heard was Tom Luziski, the head of exhibits at the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History, describing the exhibit where the Cooper bison skull is displayed. You'll remember from recent episodes that the Cooper bison skull is the oldest artifact with a painted design on it that's ever been discovered in North America. In two previous Biota episodes, the archeologist who discovered the skull Dr. Leland Bement, he described how the skeletal remains of bison from three separate hunts at an ancient arroyo trap not only tell us how these ancient people hunted bison antiquus, but the painted skull and specific features of how the bison were hunted and butchered shed new light on previously unknown cultural aspects of bison hunting by the Folsom people. You can listen to those episodes to hear Dr. Bement explain how researchers combined different kinds of data collected at the Cooper Bison kill site to reconstruct what happened in that Arroyo trap over 10,000 years ago. In this episode, we'll hear the conclusion of my interview with Dr. Bement as he takes us into the field with him on the day he discovered the Cooper Bison skull. He'll tell us what it's like to uncover a 10,000-year-old skull and the journey that skull took from that ancient Arroyo trap to where it now sits in a museum. One last time, I'll turn things over to Dr. Bement. All right. Let me take you through one of our days. You, our excavations always took place in the summertime. And you know, Northwest Oklahoma during the summertime can be extremely hot, extremely dry, extremely windy fairly miserable to a certain extent. And even though we're down within the Beaver River Valley, that our excavation is actually taking place up on the hill next to the Beaver River. I mean, you can see the Beaver River out there. You've got the floodplain with all the trees are right there. But we are excavating a site that is a ancient gully that totally filled up with sediment and we're talking 15 feet worth of sediment has dunes blown on top of it 
and we're up out of the valley where there's nothing but yucca and sagebrush and grass and no trees. So we are excavating in the open sun. It's hot. It has been hot for weeks. We've gone through uh, a crew of a, a whole lot of different people. We've had students out there. We've had uh, the local, uh, the Oklahoma Anthropological Society members helped us out with our excavations. We've had all sorts of different people out there. And after a while, it gets hot, and pretty soon everyone wants to be down in the screen area in, under the shade trees while we're still excavating up in the bone bed. But to, when, when the skull came up, we were down to just me and a couple of my graduate students. And we would start our day from, we were, had a camp uh, near the site. It was about a mile away from the site, so it wasn't that close, but about a mile away, a dry camp. Had to haul in water. And you have to remember, this was back 1994, no cell phones. You know, the primitive time for us. Um, so our, our basic routine was you get up, you walk into where the site is, and you start excavating starting early in the morning as soon as the sun's coming up because you want to be done by mid-afternoon when it just gets so hot. And out there, we, we took a radio with us so that we would have the distraction a little bit of some music in the background. But the it, it, this is Woodward, Oklahoma, and the radio stations don't exactly play music all the time. There's a whole lot of other commentary that goes on from the DJs. And they had these two particular programs. One was the Roadkill Report. And so every morning at approximately 8 o'clock, they would have the Roadkill Report where somebody would call in and describe what animal they saw smashed in the middle of the road somewhere and how many of them they saw. And, you know, it, it, it was, it was fun just to listen to because it was something different. And that was one of them. The other one that occurred later in the day was called the elevator from hell. And, the radio station would take a generally a rock and roll song and slow it down and change it over so that it would provide kind of a Muzak type of situation that you would expect to hear, a rendition in, that you'd hear in an elevator. And then the contest was for the listeners to call in and try to identify what the song is. So you can imagine that they played a lot of Beatles songs that were turned into elevator music for people to try to call in and identify. So this was fun. We didn't have a phone to be able to call in, but we would still sit there and argue amongst ourselves as to, okay, what's that song? What, what's, what's it got to be, you know? This was 
the intellectual capabilities of our crew at this particular time during the day. And uh, you look forward to these things. Now, we also had more intellectual conversations as we were excavating and also just other discussions in general. And basically, the three or four of us there, there were three at this particular time, as we were excavating along and you would be part of the discussion, then eventually you would notice that one of us has dropped out of the discussion or they're no longer talking. And that usually was a sign that they had found something other than bison bow, that they'd come across a flake or a knife or a projectile point, especially. And these things were exciting. I mean, finding a Folsom point anytime is very, very exciting. Finding them at this kill site is very exciting. Um, and no matter how many Folsom points we had found previously, it didn't matter. Finding another one was still an exciting thing. And so you'd notice somebody dropped out of the conversation and you'd look over and say, okay, what'd you come up with? And, you know, if it was a point, then there would be this flurry of activity of documenting the projectile point before it's picked up, photographing it, all of these, these procedures that have to happen before you move on. Well, on this particular day, it was hot, extremely hot, and the area that I was excavating in I was following the leg off of one of these articulated bison skeletons, following it out towards the hoof. And as I came down to the lower part of the leg uh, and started digging down around it, I encountered more bone directly under it. And as I started cleaning off the bone, it was clear that it was a section of skull. And as I continued to brush off the sediment from that, I started seeing this image of this bright red line. And then it made a zigzag and another zigzag. And I'm going, wow, this is weird. And so I cleaned it off, you know, brushed a bigger space and opened it up and just stopped. I was just staring at this very, very bright, white, sun-bleached skull fragment that had this brilliant red zigzag line on it. Well, I had stopped talking to the, everybody. The other two guys were working at other ends of the bone bed, and so they stopped and stood up and turned to look to see what I'd found, expecting it to be another projectile point or something. But from their various vantage points, when they looked down, all they could see this bright white skull with this brilliant red zigzag on it. And the three of us were just silent looking at this painted skull that was in this bone bed. Well, I mean, after that, then you get real excited going, what, what is it? Is that really a painted skull? I mean, is that really what you found? And so, you, un you know, we're all in there trying to uncover the rest of the skull. 
and finding more bits of paint going off. There ended up being that main zigzag. There were three more zigzag lines that went towards one of the horns. There were two more lines that were along the edge of just above the tooth row, the maxilla. And so we had all of this painted skull there, and we're just going, wow, this is just awesome to have a painted skull in a fulsome bone bed in northwest Oklahoma. Holy cow, what do you do now? We have other instances uh, with Clovis, uh, the red pigment covering uh, projectile points being stored with the projectile points. But this is the oldest painted something in North America. We do our usual documentation, you know, lots and lots of photo photography. We uh, do a scale drawing, mapping of where this is in terms of our overall bone bed. We're going through all of that. And then we're going, okay, well, we need to go call somebody to let them know because this is one of the traditions in archaeology and in a lot of science is you find you make a discovery, you leave it in place and go invite other archaeologists to come see it because we want to have more people see it in place so that one, you have witnesses that, yeah, it was found here, it's in place, you know, kind of to verify the find. Well, you know, we're, we're a mile away from camp, and then you have to drive into Woodward from there another 15 miles or so, more or less, and find a payphone. Payphone, you remember those things, you know. So you had to find a payphone, remember to take along enough change so you can make the call, to call back to here to Norman to talk to the director of the survey and say, look, we found this painted skull. And, of course, you immediately get, oh, yeah, sure you did. And we're going, no, no, really, we got a painted skull. And they're going, are you really saying you got a painted bison skull? Yeah, it's full summation. Go, yes, it's a painted skull. Come out here and take a look. Call some other people. Let them know. See who, who can come out and take a look at this. Because, yeah, you, know, you can't just snap a picture of it and, and email it to somebody. It, that technology just isn't there yet. You know, and so we're saying, just call, just come out and take a look at it. Well, we had protected the skull because, you know, by placing a piece of um, permeable ground cloth over the top of it and put some sediment on top of that and then setting very gently, setting a dustpan over that and then putting more dirt on top of the dustpan to keep the wind from blowing stuff off. Simple, good technique, because it's been hot, it's been dry, that'll work fine. You know, we can have it protected. Well, that night, that night, it rained an inch and a half on us. It hadn't rained at all for probably four and a half weeks that we'd been out there working. And here we uncover this painted skull and 
we get this huge rainstorm on top of us. Well, after we'd called in the night before, of course, you know, you get up in the morning and you're going, okay, well, people should be starting to come out later today. And here it's rained. And here we found this skull and we covered it up with dirt. What did the rain do? Did we just uncover a, a painted skull, the oldest painted something, just to have the rain come wash it away? So we walked out to the to the site and it was mud. Everything was just so muddy. And we were just apprehensive as you, I mean, what could you do? You're just sitting there looking at it going, oh man. And so we started our excavations, just leaving it there because it was going to be a nice hot day again. It should dry off and then we can start getting the sediment off. And we did. We let it dry for a couple hours, then we removed the dustpan. And under the dustpan was the dirt on that permeable, remember that part, cloth that was right on top of the paint. And we're going, uh, it's, and that was wet, so we had to wait for that to dry. And we very, very gently removed the cloth. And under that was a layer of mud directly on the skull. So we were going to have to re-excavate the skull one more time, but we're just letting it dry. Just, just let it dry out. And we let it, we let it dry. So about mid-afternoon, nobody had showed up yet to come look at it. Mid-afternoon, it finally is dry and you could take a brush and start to brush away the sediment and it was still red there was still paint. The paint was still in perfect condition. It had not affected the paint at all, which we later on we would figure out why, because it also had been permeated with enough um, calcium carbonate from those sediments out there for 10,000 years that had this nice thin layer over it that was transparent layer of calcium carbonate that protected it. So it wasn't going to come off by just rain hitting it. But we didn't know that. We were just sitting there freaking out going, what the heck? And so it was still there. Thank goodness. So, of course, at the end of the day, we hadn't had any visitors at all come out that first day. So we covered it all back over again, much more substantially this time just because who knew what was going to happen next. We left that skull in place for a week so people could come out, take a look at it. During that week, we got five and a half inches of rain. So we refer to that painted skull, that paint, as a lightning bolt for a dang good reason, because it sure brought a lot of rain to us. That's not the end of rain in the story of the Cooper Bison skull. I'll let Dr. Bement tell you what happened next. I mean, how much more do you need, right? You sit there, you have this painted skull, you call it the lightning bolt. It's already been rained on like crazy in the field. We get it out of the, out of the ground and bring it back to Norman. And we're working on conserving it, you know, trying to get it to hold together, uh, 
clean it as best we can. We, the, the Museum of Natural History, of course, at that time, uh, was building their new building, just finished their brand new museum here on campus. And the Cooper site was going to be one of their very first displays up in the People's Gallery, um, permanent displays. And that painted skull was designed to go into kind of its centerpiece. And so they had created a nice display case for it to put it in there. And we put that skull in there and they had their opening. And that night of their opening, we had one of those big thunderstorms come through Norman. And I don't know how many inches of rain it dropped, but it was a considerable amount. But that brand new museum, the drainage on the roof of that museum clogged up and water found a way through that roof into the people's gallery. And it absolutely just soaked the display case of that painted skull just through the ceiling came straight down onto that skull. So yeah, we think that painted skull still has got a little bit of power left in it. Just a little. I had two remaining questions for Dr. Bement. First, I wanted to know if he ever goes to the museum to look at the skull he found. Yes. I go over and look at that skull every so often, probably Oh, just a couple times a year, but you know, that's been 25 years now or a little more. So I've looked at it plenty of time. Uh, but I still go over to look at it just because you, it, it's so hard to imagine that we first found that thing that you still get that awe of really a painted skull in Northwest Oklahoma. That's over 10,000 years old. I mean, that's, it's just hard for me to still get my mind around that just because it, there are so many factors to make that work, but then for us to discover it in place and then everything that happened since then that has confirmed that that's really, yeah, it's a painted skull and, and all of these thoughts that go with that and and that it's an important part of understanding Folsom society or Folsom culture because there's this ritual aspect that was involved in hunting bison that we as archaeologists often just don't connect with. We don't see it. We see the bison as a subsistence item. They're killing them. They're eating them. They're making tools from them. They're using the hide for clothing and blankets and stuff. We see the subsistence role that bison play. But here is this evidence of this intangible side of this prehistoric culture of ritual and belief system that's all imbued in, imbued into this, this skull that's in this very unlikely place that we found. And so in that regard, yes, it's, it's a very important part just for me as an archaeologist to go back and remind myself that you got to look for the unexpected. There's these other aspects out there. I mean, we have all this technology. We can 
figure out people movement, animal movement, but none of that points out what the rituals are, what that other ass for the sacredness of these animals. Only a painted skull gives you that aspect. When we first found that painted skull and we were back in camp, we were still, you'd go from being very, very excited about what you'd found to being extremely introverted, reflective about, you know, we'd, we'd already taken out probably 25, 30 skulls off of the site. Did any of those have paint on them? Did we miss paint on any other skulls? I mean, these skulls are encapsulated in foam to protect them, to be able to get them out, spray foam and instead of plasters, that very same concept though, you encase it to remove it. And so you couldn't just easily go back and take a look at more skulls to see if we miss paint. You have to remove them from their, their encasement to ever look at them again. And so we're just sitting there going, how, how much have we missed? Were there other painted skulls out there? And, you know, the only thing that we could come up with, and now even after re-excavating all these skulls, looking at them, looking for paint, there is one more instance of something that happened at the site that is out of the ordinary. And that happened, you know, we have three different kill episodes. The painted skull goes with the middle kill. One of the animals from the upper kill had a bison skull jammed up into its rib cage. This is the only time that we'd seen of a skull or some other part of an animal taken off of its articulated skeleton and something done with it, except for the painted skull. Here we had a skull that had been jammed up into the rib cage of another animal. Its skeleton was not nearby. We don't know what animal that skull was selected from to be jammed up in there. But having it, it was missing its mandibles. So it probably was from an, an earlier kill episode, probably from the middle kill. You know, when they came back another five or 10 years later and did another one. They selected that skull. They jammed it up in the rib cage. It had no paint on it, but just like the painted skull, it was from a young bull, and it would have already been uh, sun bleached, cleaned of everything, and that's what they selected. Now, is that all coincidence? I, I don't know, but it may be that we did have one other action that took place there that would have been at the end of all of the hunting that took place in that arroyo. Um, that may have had something to do with it. Otherwise, it could have been some pesky, pesky kid taking the skull and just jamming up in there because it was bored, you know. And finally, I wanted to know what he would like for people to think about when they look at the Cooper Bison skull in the exhibit. I would like them to consider that there's a lot more to understanding any culture 
particularly prehistoric cultures uh, that I deal with, but looking at any culture around the world and realizing that there is a whole lot of symbolism, a lot of socialness that that is involved in every human culture and that it is represented in more than just what you eat, but it can be represented in something as ephemeral as a bison skull, but it's also going to be represented in their customs, in their songs, in their designs on their clothing, designs on uh, almost anything that people own uh, will have something painted on it, stitched into it, that has some sort of a cultural meaning. It is something that is from their culture. And we may not be able to understand what that zigzag line is. We call it a lightning bolt. But to them, it probably represented anything but a lightning bolt. We will never know. But we have to remember that every culture has certain parts of it that that just is totally filled with ritual and meaning that is not always explicit, that there's these very implied parts of that society that take on a different form. And in this particular case, it should be striking to find this painted skull in a place where Painting a skull is the last thing you would think that they'd be doing. And we need to look around in our culture and those that have a different culture from us and see what what's really important there. It's not just the food. There's other parts. That concludes my interview with Dr. Bement. Like was said at the beginning of the episode, once you know what the Cooper Bison skull is and how it was found, it's really quite an astounding artifact and story. I try to imagine what the ancient tribal elder or hunter thought about that skull and how and why it was important to them. And then I also wonder what they would think about it surviving all this time and eventually being displayed in a place of honor and taking on a completely new importance and meaning and significance to us. I hope you get a chance to visit the museum and experience the Cooper Bison Skull for yourself or at least learn more about it virtually through the Sam Noble Museum website. This episode wraps up the Biota series on the animals that once lived in the part of North America now known as Oklahoma at the end of the Pleistocene. We learned about the megafauna mass extinction and the people and other animals that survived it. We also learned how the Folsom people adapted technologically and culturally to their changing world. I hope these episodes have helped you develop a better understanding of those extremely interesting and sometimes underappreciated parts of the story of life on Earth. I want to thank my guests in this series, Dr. Leland Bement, Dr. Haley Lanier, and Tom Luziski. As always, you can find additional resources about the topics they discussed in these episodes and other resources on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. This also brings us to the end of Season 2 of Biota. I want to thank Terry Gibson for editorial assistance and help with episode development. Thanks also to Pete, Maggie, Rob, Veronica, Addison, Amy, and Ned for their contributions. And congrats also go out to Amy and Addison who are off to explore some new scientific adventures. 
The Biota team will be taking some time off over the summer to get ready for season three in the fall. But we plan to try and drop a couple of episodes before then. I'm Phil Gibson, and this has been Biota. As always, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.